Welcome to episode 52 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we have true crime and paranormal stories from the state of Maryland. I will be doing the true crime story this week. Mom has the paranormal and the beverage, which you even have garnished over here. Super cute. What are we drinking, Mom? We are drinking an orange crush. Ooh, like the soda? Not to be mistaken with the soda. It is the drink of Maryland, believe it or not. I think of oranges coming from California. Yes. Well, so this drink was created in 1995 for the Ocean City's Harbor Bar and Grill. Okay. So the bartenders made this up there and it took off like crazy, like fire. Yeah. So this is the drink for the summer and seaside escape for Marylanders. (laughs) Okay. We have snow outside, so... (laughs) Well, this will make you think of summer. Truly will. Summer! I feel like Olaf. I like the little description that the uh, blog Margaritaville.com wrote about this. The Orange Crush is much like the beaches of Maryland. Sweet, simple, and guaranteed to be a good old time for everyone. Ooh! It really is very easy to make, and it is absolutely delicious. Oh, I'm so excited. Here we go. All right, Mama. Cheers. Cheers. Seriously, tastes like an orange crush. It's very good. The only problem with this is you cannot taste the alcohol. No, I was going to say you can. I don't taste alcohol at all. It has a good fizziness to it, like a soda would. And it's very fresh orange. Like Because I squeezed the orange. Ah. <laughs> you squeeze an entire orange in one in one of these drinks. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And the rest of it is alcohol. So. Wow. Okay. There is alcohol. It's two ounces orange vodka, mm. one ounce of triple sec, fresh juice from one whole orange. Wow. Crushed ice and a splash of lemon lime soda. I put Sprite in there. Okay. That's it. Oh, it's delicious. Yep. Pretty easy. Pour all the ingredients over the ice and splash it with lemon lime soda of your choice, 7-Up, Sprite, whatever. Mix well and garnish with an orange slice. And she did garnish. I did. I did. (laughs) It's tasty. A good kickoff to Maryland. Yeah. You could pour a little sparkling in this and it's like a spiked mimosa. (laughs) (laughs) Heavy duty mimosa. Yeah. Now you're talking. (laughs) Yummy. All right, mom. Before I dive into the case, I'm going to give a little history lesson. (laughs) Not really. It's more of like a description of the time period the case happened in. Okay. Setting the stage, if you will. The year was 1954. The location was Baltimore, Maryland. World War II was over, but air raid drills were a normal occurrence. Really? So cities would be given, say, a 72-hour window warning that a drill was going to happen. Interesting. I didn't even know this. And when the sirens went off, the streets were to all be cleared. Everyone had to take shelter Mm -hmm. until they were given the all clear to go back on the streets. Now, this was in Baltimore. I don't know if this was all over the United States or if it was just in big cities. I'm sorry. I, I don't know that. But at least this is what I know of what was happening in Baltimore at the time. Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. Marilyn Monroe got married to Joe DiMaggio. Gotta throw that baseball reference in there for Alex. Of course. The Tonight Show first aired with Steve Allen as the host. 
and rock and roll was becoming the thing. <laughs> Elvis had just started his career. Swaying his hips. Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets was the hit song. Interesting. Okay. So all in all, think happy days. <laughs> think about one of my favorite movies of all time, Grease. Poodle skirts, cigarettes, and cars. Driving around in cars, parking in cars, hanging out around cars. Oh my <laughs> Basically, gosh, so just my dad. Cars. Yeah, so my dad. <laughs> Those that loved the cars and the Levi's and the black leather jackets were called greasers. Mm-hmm. And in this story, the teen gang that emulated this was called the Drapes. Okay. So back then, you were either a drape, like a delinquent of sorts, or a square. A goody right, goody. Right. <laughs> Drapes or drapettes were usually from working class families. The Unsolved Mysteries podcast claimed they were like a group of outsiders that didn't really fit in with the other kids at school, the squares. So the drapes acted tough, usually found in mechanics classes in school, souping up their cars and such. Right. Drapes in the 50s were known for picking fights and quote unquote petty crimes. Now I say that in quotes because those crimes were stealing cars, robbing stores or homes. This just doesn't sound like petty to me. No. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, but that's as that's how it was listed was petty crimes like stealing cars. So now some of you may recognize Drapes from the movie Crybaby. Crybaby came out in the 90s. It was a teen musical romantic comedy. It was written by John Waters. He also did Hairspray. Hairspray, I know. Crybabies, <laughs> no. Crybaby starred Johnny Depp as the teen rebel in that movie. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So John Waters grew up around the area and during the time that this case happened and it stuck with him. It really stuck with him. Not necessarily the case itself, but the lifestyle of the drapes, the media coverage of the story and drapes. The girl that died was a drape. And the way the media and even quotes from her father later on, basically victim blame. The girl? The girl. The mm -hmm. victim? Oh, geez. She ran in a rough crowd. The wrong crowd. She was fast. And because of that, her death occurred. I mean, that's <laughs> basically how it was all summed up. And that really interested John Waters. That whole lifestyle of drapes really interested him. And later on in life, he ended up writing Crybaby because of it. So Crybaby is not about this girl or a murder even, but it exemplifies. It exemplifies what the drapes and drapettes were and their lifestyles. Okay. The murder I'm going to share with you all today is a cold case. No leads or real suspects going on 66 years now. Oh, geez. I read a lot of blogs and I always like to check the comments on blogs. Yeah, yeah. It's like my favorite thing to do. A lot of the comments on these blogs were from people that grew up in the area at the time or comments from people that knew the family or were even extended family. And... A lot of these comments expressed the concern that the case was never really handled properly because Carolyn Wazalewski was a drape. Because of her lifestyle choices, and I was not around then, and I cannot tell you for certain, obviously. I know you weren't around then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in another life, but we'll chat about that later. I just really wanted to throw that out there because, like we learned from the Gina Renee Hall case, there is always more to the story right there is always another side especially if there is it is a cold case it's unsolved so there's more to this 
story than what's just out there in the media. I did as much research as I possibly could, but I had to throw that fact out there is that a lot of these comments in these blogs were that the police didn't, you know, she was a drape. They blamed it on the rough, you know, the fast crowd she ran in and it was her fault kind of a thing. Sort of like what they say about sex workers. Yes. And, but it's, it's terribly sad. I mean, even her father was quoted as saying something along the lines of, I told her to stop hanging out with those kids. She brought this on herself. Oh. She was asking for it. She wouldn't listen. And that's just so sad. It is. It is. But in the end, drape or not, Carolyn Wazalewski was a victim whose life was taken way too soon. So I'm going to start Carolyn's story with a photo. Mom, here is a photo of Carolyn. From this photo, how old would you say Carolyn is? I hate to say this, but like high school pictures back then. Yeah. They always looked older than what sure. they were. Sure, sure, sure. But how old do you, how does she look to you? Oh, she looks like she's like 25, 27, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing she's 17 or 18. She was 14 years old. She was 14 in this picture. She was 14 years old. She was a freshman at Southern High School in Baltimore. Oh, she was my a gosh. beautiful girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. Her family went by the surname Wells because Wazalewski was really difficult for people to say. And But Carolyn went by Peaches by her friends. So she was 14, but she definitely looked like older 20s. And she passed for that a lot. Oh, I can see how. Yeah. And again, those pictures do make them look older. But even in real life, people always thought she was much older than she She looked. She beautiful skin. (laughs) Just saying. Carolyn was the oldest of seven kids, which has got to be hard. Being the oldest with younger siblings can be tough. Mm Mm-hmm. She was basically kind of the built-in helper with all the kids and all the little ones. She and her family lived in a small home in row houses in the Morrill Park area of Baltimore. Descriptions of Carolyn were that she was popular, high-spirited, beautiful, older than her years, and boy crazy. Hmm. She was 14. I was boy crazy at 14. Yes, you were. (laughs) And again, she was 14. She was just looking for a place to fit in. We've all been there. Right. And she found that place with the drapes. Her home life was not terrible. There was no sign of abuse or neglect. Her parents were very caring for her. She was just a passionate girl who wanted that freedom and excitement. There were times leading up to the fateful November of 1954 where Carolyn would run off and disappear for some time. Hmm. She'd always come back apologetic and promising she would try to do better. After running away for a couple of weeks in the summer of 1953, she came back again apologizing and her parents didn't know what else to do and they sent her away to live at the House of the Good Shepherd. It was a residence home for women and girls. Okay. They helped guide them, you know, gave them jobs to do and taught them. I can't blame the parents either. I can't imagine being a parent of a child that runs away. I mean, for weeks, the angst that that would cause would be awful. So she remained at the House of Good Shepherd for the rest of the summer. After summer, she moved back in home before school started and she was really ready for a fresh start. She was a really good student. She worked hard in school. She got A's. I mean, she worked really hard. And then the next summer came. And she found herself surrounded by the neighborhood kids, her old friends, the drapes. 
Now, we mentioned before that she looks much older than 14, and she knew that too, and she would use that to her advantage for things. With her older looks came older men. Mm. That summer of 54, she was hanging around the neighborhood, hanging out while the drapes fixed up and worked on their cars. I mean, she's home for the summer. There's nothing really to do. She's just hanging out. And then there's all these kids she knows hanging out in her neighborhood. I mean, what is she going to do? Right. So she's just hanging out with them. They're fixing up their cars. And that's how she met Paul, a 20-year-old. He had a bit of a reputation for stealing cars and bad boy being fast with girls. He thought she was gorgeous. And the two started dating. It was a young romance. So it was hot and heavy for a while. And the two got into trouble for a while. And then it only lasted a couple months. Mm, okay. And it simmered out. So now school's about to start up again. Mm-hmm. She's a girl up for excitement now. She's just been all summer stealing cars with her 20-year-old boyfriend. And now she's going back to school. Entering ninth grade? Entering the ninth grade. Oh, my gosh. That mm-hmm. just put it in perspective. Yes. <laughs> She isn't quite over Paul, but she is beautiful and popular and has a few guys after her. So why not? I guess you could say she started dating or maybe she just liked the extra attention. Sure. She started getting that extra attention from older men like Frankie, a 30-year-old trolley driver with the Baltimore Transit. From what I understand, he bought her a meal or something like he took her out once and she really wasn't interested in him and she just kind of like ditched him for her friends that night he, mm. she just again maybe she just wanted the hamburger and fries or maybe the chocolate shake i don't know or the attention maybe she like just wanted said. to look cool she was in his car and then she's just like yeah an older guy is... likes her and yeah yeah but he I'm wasn't not, fun. i'm not i'm not really interested in you right again we don't know these facts but mm-hmm. or how she was feeling Then there was an oil truck driver, another older man named Johnny. He would meet her at her bus stop every day after school for a while. I don't think she was terribly into this guy. I think she just met up with him and chatted. Again, he's just giving her attention. Right. She was seen a few times chatting with other older men, too. One of them was a neighbor of hers, Ralph Garrett. He was 45. Oh, my gosh. Married and lived down the street with his wife. The two were seen a time or two together, just chatting in the neighborhood. And again, they could just be innocently chatting. Yeah. But it was seen a few times and she was always, she's just with those older men. Again, she could not have seen, she was 14. Maybe she didn't know. I I don't, I honestly couldn't tell you. No. It just seems like this 14 year old grew up a little too quickly. Yeah. Towards the end of fall, a girlfriend of Carolyn's convinced her to go out on a double date. Carolyn's friend was 15 and the two boys were 18 and 19. Unfortunately, on this double date, one of the boys sexually assaulted Carolyn's friend. The friend pressed charges and on November 1st, Carolyn went to court to testify on behalf of her friend. Oh, wow. So again, a 14-year-old that's just growing up way too quickly. And being put in a position like that. Ugh. So now we're into November 1954 and Carolyn gets dressed in a black skirt with arrow decals on it a little pink sweater, a black corduroy jacket, and curlers in her hair. Mm. She had a green scarf around the curlers and a little black scarf tied around her neck. I think of that little black scarf thing that Rizzo wore in Greece. Yes, that's what I'm thinking right (laughs) now. Okay, yeah. (laughs) 
Her parents were not too fond of what she was wearing, but she promised she'd be right back. It was a school night after all, and she had been doing well in school. You know, while she was in school, she kind of kept, she was kept busy and kept out of all the mischief. Right. Gotcha. So she promised, I will be home by nine to school night. And she was heading out to meet her girlfriend, Peggy, at her family home in a nearby Washington Boulevard trailer park. And then the two of them were going to walk together to the local elementary school to register for a dance class. Carolyn left her house at 6.15 p.m. With curlers in her hair? Mm-hmm. She left with curlers in her hair. With that little scarf on top? Yeah, yeah. The hours ticked by and Carolyn never came home. Oh, no. Her mother, Mary, had a terrible suspicion something was wrong. They called over to Peggy's house. Carolyn had never shown. Oh, no. Later, they find out she never made it to the elementary school either. So it's not like she went to the elementary school by herself right. to register for the dance class. Now, was this all the truth? She was telling the truth. They really were going to do this. We don't know. But that is something you have to wonder. Was she going out to meet a boy? Was she going out? Was she really going to be doing this? Was that really right. a plan? We don't know. Oh, Carolyn's parents drove around the city of Baltimore looking everywhere for their daughter, asking everyone they could. No one had seen her. No one knew where she was. In the middle of driving around, in the middle of their search, the air raid sirens blared, meaning everyone had to get off the streets into shelter. The two parents pulled over and waited in their car for the all clear. It's eerie for me to think that if those sirens had not gone off, would Carolyn have been found? Did those sirens pull her into a dangerous situation no the following morning november 9th an engineer on the pensy express train heading into baltimore from harrisburg pennsylvania got word to change tracks and just in time too because as they reached the belvedere avenue bridge he noticed a crowd gathering around what looked to be a body laying on the tracks it was the body of 14-year-old Carolyn Wazalewski. Oh. Carolyn's body was found face down on the railroad tracks. Her pink sweater and bra were pulled up around her neck. One earring was missing. She wore socks, but the remainder of her clothing was missing as well. She was cut and bruised. There was a large bleeding wound from her head, which later the examiner would label the cause of death, a fractured skull. She also had a fractured jaw, two broken ribs, contusions to the right eye and right knee, and her ring finger was broken. Oh, poor baby. Proving that she had really put up a fight. Right. Well, I'm sure she did. Now, resources were kind of sketchy here because they all used the quote, there was no sign of a violent sexual assault. Oh, what the? (laughs) But her clothes are all missing. Does that mean she was sexually assaulted, but just not violently I'm not sure, but the exact words were no sign of a violent sexual assault. I don't know why I found that so weird, but like, why couldn't they just say she was sexually assaulted? Why did they have to put in there she was not violently sexually assaulted? And that's kind of odd to you. Yeah, it almost, I don't know, when you listen to it, it almost blames her for. Yes, exactly. Being sexually sexually assaulted. Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe I'm looking into it too much, but everywhere I read, it's like, she was not violently sexually assaulted. It's like... Big deal. Big she, deal. Was she was sexually assaulted. I'm assuming she was sexually assaulted then. Her clothing is missing. Anyway. Yeah. <sighs> Ugh. There was no blood on the tracks, and her hair and clothing was covered in burrs. So, investigators believed that she had been drugged or brought over to the tracks. The medical examiner named the time of death to be 11 p.m., on November 8th, 
the last train pulled under that bridge where she was found mm-hmm. at 10.30 p.m. Oh, so wow. it seemed that she was killed somewhere else mm-hmm. and then brought here to the track right. Later investigators would find Carolyn's blood on the railing of the Belvedere Bridge above the train tracks. So it was assumed her body was thrown off the bridge, oh. then possibly dragged onto the tracks. Jeez, that would cause contusions. Yeah. The oddest thing about the scene was found on her body in four inch letters written in what was believed to be lipstick on Carolyn's thigh was the name Paul. Oh, Carolyn Wazalewski was left unidentified for over 12 hours after her body was found. Remember, she looked older than 14. Right. So when police put this out there, they said a younger woman in her 20s, like she looked older. So they really didn't put two and two together of a missing 14-year-old girl because her parents had gone to the police yeah. and she was missing. A missing 14-year-old girl and then this older woman that they found on the tracks. They didn't put things together until later that evening. And Carolyn's father went to identify the body, I think at like 7 or 8 p.m. that night. Mm-hmm. And he ended up collapsing at the recognition God, of his I, daughter's I, I body. Even, I can't even imagine. No, I can't either. I don't think I would get up for days. Once identified, the search for the perpetrator began. It was a huge search. And by the 10th of November, the story had spread all over the country. Now, I have to be, well, I have to be me here. (laughs) And I hate how this story has spread. It was spread as like a warning to girls. It wasn't spread of awareness of a death and there's a killer on the loose. It was spread as a warning to girls. Look what happens. Basically, see, if you're fast... This is what's going to happen to you. Right. I guess those were the times, but it just irks me to my core. It just makes me really mad. So many people were questioned. So many people came forward with evidence or suspicion of their own. I believe I read that over 1,500 people gave statements or were questioned. Police start to narrow names down to some of the men I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Frankie, the trolley driver. Johnny, the oil tank driver. A man that apparently confronted and threatened Carolyn days before her death. And Paul, the ex-boyfriend. There was no concrete timeline of Carolyn's evening after she left her family home at 6.15. Neighbors did claim to have seen her speaking with her neighbor, Ralph Garrett, that evening near her home. But she could have just been walking by. Sure. But he could have then possibly been the last person to see her alive, maybe knew where she was heading or knew something. So he was a police want to talk to him and know, Mm -hmm. did you see her? What would would you guys talk about? But they can't get a hold of him. So they start moving down their suspect list. Paul, the ex-boyfriend. I mean, his name was written on her thigh. Yeah, that's weird, though. So he had been in jail at the time of the murder, though. Yeah, someone was trying to frame him Police or something. Police found stupid. him at a reformatory for young men. Honestly, he had the strongest alibi of any of the suspects. He had guards on him at all times. Yeah. And they said he had been in there all week. Now, I'm just thinking about me at 14 and my boy craziness. I had my crush's name written all over my binder. Done by me. Could Is that something that maybe girls did back then? Is She, she still had a crush on him. I mean, she still kind of liked him. Maybe she wrote it with lipstick on her own thigh. I don't know. Okay, this is something really stupid. I'm just going to throw this out here. Okay. Writing the name Paul on someone's thigh, if she didn't do it, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know. This sounds really dumb, but it sounds like something a girl that would be jealous would do. Right. I mean... 
I mean, I know she had supposedly she had was sexually assaulted, but but was she? We don't who's know. Who's to say maybe she had a sexual relationship with somebody and then this it ticked girl. ticked a girl off, yeah. I mean, I'm going to go through the suspect lists and everything, but that is a, a good theory. It's not something I read, but it's a cold case. We have no idea. I mean, a girl could have pushed her over a the edge of that bridge. A girl could have gotten into a fight with her just as much as a, a male could have. So I, We don't know because we don't know what happened when she closed her family home's door behind her when she left at 6.15. We don't know if she was really heading to the elementary school to sign up for dance class. We don't know if she was really going to go meet Peggy. Can I ask, did she still have her curlers in? Yes. But when her body was found, she still had her curlers in? Mm -hmm. I don't think... Would she have gone to see a guy with curlers in her hair? And that's something, too, that I was thinking was maybe that was a thing back then, that it really wasn't a big deal to have your curlers in. But I'm assuming if she was going to go meet up on a date with somebody she liked, she wouldn't want her curlers in. No. Or have a sexual relationship. I don't... Right. So that's what made... That was something that I thought, too, was maybe she really was just going to go sign up for dance class with her girlfriend and then come right back home. Yeah. So Paul's off the list. Paul was in jail, had guards. He had nothing to do about it. He even helped police with like, you know, I had heard she was seeing this guy for a little while and I heard she was trying to make me jealous with this guy. So he helped as much as he could and gave names and pointed the police in certain a direction, but came to a dead end. Johnny, the oil tank driver, was brought in and totally denied even knowing Carolyn. So they moved on. May moved on. I would keep him on the top of my list. I mean, he's still on the list, but what proof do they have? Yeah. So then Frankie, the trolley driver, he confessed to knowing her. Oh, he did. He confessed to, you know, seeing her every once in a while, but he had an alibi, a firm alibi. Then a tip came in from a local fireman, Lieutenant Charles Morris. He reported that he witnessed something around the Belvedere Bridge around 11 p.m., the evening of the 8th. So the okay. evening that she was killed. Around the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. He saw what looked like a two-toned car with its lights off near the bridge. He grew curious and drove towards the car. The car sped off quickly. Ooh. He did try to follow it, but the car was too quick and got away. His story was backed up with the tire tracks that were left at the scene. Now, this doesn't give us the killer per se. Two-toned cars were pretty popular around that time does anybody on that list have a two but right it can start to narrow things down to who they're going to question because again 1500 people are coming forward with stuff this can help them narrow down some of these statements so yeah they're looking for suspects in a two-toned vehicle well ralph garrett owned a two the neighbor Mm -hmm. owned a two-toned car oh shoot again they're really popular and they knew ralph owned one and they knew that he had been possibly seen talking to her that night so again he's not necessarily a suspect but now they really want to talk He's to him. starting to become more suspicious, mm-hmm. right? And he was still nowhere to be found. What? They questioned his wife, and he's actually missing. The last time she saw him was the morning of November 8th when he drove and dropped her off at her job. She claims that for the last four years around this time of the year, Ralph had been getting very depressed. His mother had passed away four years ago at this time of year, and so he just started getting really depressed. Mm-hmm. But he's missing, so now police really want him. Then in comes a call from Harry C. Gable, another neighbor of the Wazalewskis. 
In a vacant lot in the neighborhood, just a block and a half from the Wazalewski family home, Harry Gable found blood and a lot of it. Oh, no. Investigators also find the matching earring that was missing, an aluminum hair curler, much like Carolyn's, and a blood-stained rock later identified as the murder weapon. Right. There was a diagonal trail of blood from the lot to the side of the street where a car must have been parked to transport the body. Now, people being interviewed claimed that Johnny, the oil tank driver who denied knowing her at all, Mm -hmm. he drove a two-toned car apparently, and he had been seen on a few occasions meeting her at that that lot. Oh, geez. So he was brought in again. He finally admits to knowing Carolyn, but he's married and claims to have been with his wife that night. Mm. His wife is eventually his alibi. I bet she wasn't too happy to be his alibi. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Police have no real leads and have no idea what rabbit hole to jump down. Then on November 12th, just three days after Carolyn's body was found, police start getting calls for another body. Hmm. Right across the street from the crime scene where Carolyn had been killed, this was the body of Ralph Garrett. (gasps) He had hung himself by his own belt. Again, right across the street from where Carolyn had been killed. So, okay, this has got to be the guy, right? Like, they question his wife to see if... He just did it. Mm -hmm. Okay. They question his wife to see if Carolyn and him had ever had a relationship or if they talked regularly or what. She didn't know of anything. She blamed his suicide on his depression over his mother's death years prior. But now they needed to find his car. They put out a call for his plates and eventually they actually find it a few towns over. Huh? It had been abandoned and impounded two days earlier at the Ferndale police station about 15 miles away. Police check inside the car. No blood. They even compare the tire marks left at the scene to his car. Mm-hmm. No match. The man had a good reputation. The car was clean. Police had to move on to the other suspects. That makes sense. More interviews are had. Teenagers are running into the police station with statements that men on the street threatened them, telling them that they were next. The Wazalewski family gets prank calls from people threatening them. Oh, jeez. They even had this caller calling, like, asking for Carolyn on a regular basis. Oh, no. Hi, is Carolyn home? Oh. Isn't that sick? Yeah, very. Many teenagers came forward with claims of being confronted. Weeks go by. There are a few leads, like blood-covered clothing being found in a trash can near where Carolyn's body was found. But none of the clothes were those of Carolyn's and the blood didn't end up matching. Five months later, two burglars were caught and pulled over in a two-toned car. The car interior was covered in blood. Huh? Later, it was found to be deer blood from a day of hunting. Okay. (laughs) There was even a psychic that wanted $2,000 for evidence he saw in a vision. (laughs) Okay. Now, just make note, if a psychic asks for money for something that they've seen in a vision to solve a case, uh, yeah, mm, I'd say that's a red flag, <laughs> but that's just my opinion. He tries to con a newspaper journalist for the money, but the journalist tricks him and the police get him. They take him in and he gets to spill the beans on his vision to them for free. <laughs> okay, so this is what he says. He says, Carolyn's murder was a bald railroader with a pushed in nose. He lives by the railroad tracks. He's crazy. Murder weapon was a flashlight. Oh. You haven't found any bloodstained cars because the body was wrapped in a big pair of white coveralls and transported wrapped. 
No bloody car because the body was transported in a railroad fright car. <laughs> okay. The murderer is getting very nervous. This is my favorite. He literally says this. He's kicking cats. <laughs> what? Quote, he's kicking cats. Okay. Like literally he was kicking cats. Because <laughs> he's frustrated. But I don't get it. <laughs> I am just envisioning this man going around kicking cats. <laughs> I'm frustrated. Come here, cat. Just does it. Anyway, I thought that was so (laughs) random. After he tells them all this, he has the nerve to ask for at least half the payment. (laughs) The cops tell him that, well, if any of this actually leads to her killer being found, we'll give you half the payment. Well, well, well. (laughs) The fall of 1955, a man, John R. Smith. Now, if this is his real name, I'm not sure. But on the Unsolved Mysteries podcast, they said that this guy was John R. Smith. He came in surrendering himself and claimed he did it. Police break down the man's confession. And after keeping him in the drunk tank overnight, he confesses the next morning that he had made it all up. His wife apparently thought he was worthless and he wanted to prove that he was not worthless and that he was a part of something. Oh, gosh. That poor man. Jeez Louise. What triggers these thoughts? I don't know. (sighs) Eventually, a polygrapher is brought in from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and police call up many of the people that had come in with statements previously. Mm -hmm. It was not required for them to come back in, but if they denied it, it was kind of questioned. But basically, through this, it was brought out that many, and I mean many, of the people that came forward originally were lying. Mm -hmm. One girl even admitted to giving false information about that trolley driver, Frankie, and another admitted that she was just wanting her name in the paper like her friends was because they gave evidence. Jeez. So now you don't even know what was true and what wasn't and what rabbit hole you jumped down if it was real or... Needless to say, the case went absolutely cold. I mean... What facts do you have to go on anymore? They had no real evidence, no real suspects. It's terribly sad that Carolyn's life was summed up into a story parents used to scare their children Mm. into being good. I believe mom's theory is actually really good. And now I'm kind of questioning my theory, but uh, of it being a girl, that's actually not a bad theory. But I believe it's probably a snubbed boyfriend or somebody that gave her attention and then she didn't quite give it back maybe possibly a friend of the boy that tried so she went to trial for that sexual assault right and apparently when she was out with friends after trial some kid met her like going to the bathroom or something and threatened her for putting his friend for acting away for sexual assault yeah so and i guess she walked away from that confrontation with a couple bruises Oh, jeez. So it could be that it had something to do with that trial. Maybe they were pushing her around a little too much and then something happened. Surely the police looked into that, though. Yeah, too. they did. But again, that just all ended up Nothing. cold. Nowhere. Jeez. Well, and then you have kids, kids, kids. I repeat, kids that are getting in trouble for petty crimes of stealing cars and robbing homes and stores and such. So who's to say they're even going to tell the police the truth? When the police come and question them about all a death that they may have seen or not. Right. Wow. 
Carolyn, or Peaches, as her friends called her, was a young girl with a lot of life left ahead of her. Regardless if she was a drape or popular or just a friendly girl who liked attention from others, she did not deserve the end that she received. Mm -mm. She was buried in Holy Redeemer Cemetery near the grave of her grandfather. There were many people at her funeral. Her pole bearers were drapes. Wow. The local newspaper still writes about the cold case sporadically to this day, but on the day of Carolyn's funeral, the newspaper wrote, quote, Although Carolyn had gained a reputation for living beyond her tender years, the last rites were those for a little girl. Mm-hmm. Unquote. Because that's what she was. A little girl. Rest in peace, Carolyn. <laughs> you always made me cry on these <laughs> things. I'm sorry. A true crime story is never happy, Mom. No, sorry. but gosh, I should better at this by now i'm always falling god <laughs> gee well this just this just proves we're not hard shelled people <laughs> we're just big old softies uh, we're not hardcore nope. no <laughs> we are not hardcore but let's lighten things up a bit mom share your story please all right i'm so excited about this because it is very different of course, when I looked for paranormal in Maryland, I came up with the usual bridges. <laughs> haunted houses, haunted bars, haunted taverns, haunted hotels, many of those. Haunted battlefields. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, uh, what can I do? Nothing grabbed me. So I was going through and I just happened on this. You know how these things happen? Oh, yes. Wait, mom, stop. This light keeps flicking on and off flicking on and off i think the one bulb is just dying on us but if all four of those lights on that fan go off shut up let's get out a ouija board and start talking oh my gosh what that's what my paranormal's about i mean let's talk about the ouija board oh my god what what does that have to do with Marilyn? yeah mom listen just listen okay meaning (laughs) shut up beth stop talking and listen So I'm going to kind of give you the history of the Ouija board. Do you know anything about it? No, Except I just that know you've used you, it. I use them and you don't. <laughs> yeah. It's often called a spirit or talking board. Mm-hmm. It's a flat board marked with the letters of the alphabet, the numbers zero to nine, the words yes and no, sometimes hello and goodbye, along with symbols and graphics. Okay, calling to so mind. Cool. The movable part of it, the planchet, French for little plank. Hmm is a small heart-shaped piece of wood or plastic with a hole in the middle or a pointer. <laughs> I just got the chills. Two or more people sit around the board and lightly place their fingernails... Their fingernails? <laughs> <laughs> lightly place their fingertips on the planchet. A question is asked and the planchet moves around the board, supposedly on its own. Mm-hmm. Oh, Stopping oh, it... <laughs> just turn back on. On its own. <laughs> my gosh stopping at letters to answer the question asked okay okay the idea of talking to spirits of the deceased using the ouija board came about during the spiritualism movement during the late 1840s oh yes the popularity of this movement in the u.s is often attributed to the fox sisters of new york now do you remember the fox sisters i talked about them you did you talked about the eddie brothers i talked about them when i talked about the eddie brothers in um vermont 
And that was episode 29. Oh, yeah. I know about the Fox sisters, though. But I mentioned them because they started the spiritualism movement oh, with the rapping. Yes. Oh, yes. So by the 19th century. People cent- just think they were like popping their feet. Yeah, but they flocked to them. I know. By the hundreds. Because well, they were a totally new thing. By anyway, the 19th sorry. century, spiritualism was very popular. Supposedly, millions were involved in the movement all through the United States. The world, I'm sure. Which is the time you think about it that sarah winchester was very much involved in seances yes so she was caught up in that same movement absolutely mediums were the result of spiritualism they claimed that the dead could talk to the living through them they used a number of things to convince people that they were indeed talking to the deceased now remember this is the beginning of mediums okay right one was the table turning Mm. i'd never heard of this have you does the table like turn around flip over well, that's a trick <laughs> a parlor trick <laughs> since i'd never heard of it i looked it up well thank you for doing so because <laughs> we could sit here with ideas all day otherwise participants in a seance would sit around a table place their hands on it and the alphabet would slowly be spoken and the table would tilt at the appropriate letter spelling out words that would take forever <laughs> All right, guys. A, B, C, no. D, A, o, D. B. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What if they're like talking to me? It'd be the longest name. And not only names, they're writing like, sentences. Oh, my god! This wasn't popular for very long. No. Because after the initial novel- novelty wore off, the participants would become yeah, very They didn't want to sit in a seance for bored. six hours. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how no. long it would take just to have a sentence spelled well, out? Well, you know what? These people are probably really smart because they're like, well, it's $10 an hour. <laughs> and then, oh, by the way, these, you owe me $100. These spirits took like years <laughs> to spell out whatever they're spelling. And then it's, it even ends on, come back next week. <laughs> I'll tell you more. And more and more. <laughs> Another method <laughs> used. Oh, the light went out. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> Sorry. Another method used the planchets with two wheels at one end and a pencil at the other. Remember, this is before the Ouija board. Okay, in this method, only the medium would place his or her hands on the planchet, and when a question was asked, the answer would be written out by the spirit. Because remember, there's a pencil at one end. Ah, okay. Who was believed to be moving it, okay? This method didn't stick around for long either, as it was well, often... how do you prove that that's... Well, it was often very difficult to read the message, if you could <laughs> read it at all. <laughs> well, you can imagine writing with this pencil as you're pushing the other end around. No, that's weird. No. It's like the etch sketch. Who came up with that one? They it's like were the not... etch sketch thing, but even weirder. Yeah. In 1816, the press released an article about a, quote, talking board being used by spiritualists in Ohio. Oh. One of the many who read the article was Charles Kinnard of Baltimore, Maryland. He rounded up three other investors and the Kinnard Novelty Company was born. The company made and sold Ouija boards. How did they come up with the name Ouija? Ouija. Oh, just listen. Okay. None of the investors was into spiritualism, but they were smart businessmen who knew a moneymaker when they saw one. Yeah. So now they had the production of these talking boards 
but what to call them? They needed a name. So where does Ouija come from? Oh, <laughs> one a fortune teller. One story has it that it's a combination of we, French, ya, German, yes, in both languages. But that turns out to be just a made up story. Not a yes board. <laughs> <laughs> that turns out to be a made up story started by William Folk, the man who took over the Kennard Novelty Company in 1892. Okay. Another story, and this one is believed to be true, is that the name Ouija was given by the sister-in-law of one of the company's investors, Helen Peters, who happened to be a medium. The story goes that during a session with the board, it was asked what it should be called. Oh. The word Ouija was the reply of the board. When asked what that word meant, the answer came back, good luck, in Egyptian in ancient Egyptian writing. Wait, how did it come back in ancient Egyptian writing when it's just regular ABCs on the no, board? No, it's spelled out good luck. Oh, in which translated, uh, which, so Ouija means good luck. Oh, Ouija means good luck. Yeah. Okay, I'm following now. But I'm going to add here that, well, Helen was wearing a locket with a picture of a woman in it that she greatly admired, and the woman's name was Weeda. <laughs> okay. An author and women's rights activist. Well. So could the Ouija been a misreading of that name? <laughs> Regardless, it's a really cool name. It is a good name. Now, the next step was to get a patent for the board. Easier said than done, because they had to prove that the board worked. <laughs> so, on February 10th, 1891... Bond and Peters, two of the four investors, brought the board to the patent office in Washington, D.C. The chief patent officer asked for a demonstration. Oh my gosh, this is great. Telling the two investors that if the board could spell his name, which he thought to be unknown to them because they were from Baltimore, he lived in D.C., he would allow the patent application to proceed. The three sat down with the board between them and the planchet spelled out the officer's name. The very bewildered patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new quote toy or game. <laughs> God. Now it's not quite clear if it was the spirits of the board or if Bond, a patent attorney, <laughs> happened to know the man's name. Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> see how they knew they had a meeting with somebody, how they wouldn't get the guy's name. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, they didn't know who they were going to meet with, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I so mean, the we don't think his name is in his office anywhere. I don't know. This reminds me of Psych, <laughs> the show that I like. Like this just desk, pick up these, this pick desk up these remains, little things. <laughs> this desk has like his desk name. What am I trying to say? It has know. his name on his desk because it's like Somewhere. this desk belongs to Ronald, and they're like, oh, okay, that joke fell hard. <laughs> <laughs> the Ouija board became a huge success. By 1892, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one in London. Now remember, the only thing they made was Ouija boards. Holy cow. In 1893, William Fold was running the company, and in 1898, he licensed the exclusive rights to make the Ouija board. Wow. Unfortunately, in 1927, Fold died after a freak fall from the roof of his new factory, a factory that the Ouija board supposedly told him to build. Oh. The Ouija board is popular even today. 
130 years later. The board was marketed as an oracle and as family fun. That's so weird. It seems that the board is very popular in uncertain times when people look to answers. For example, the buying of the Ouija board surged in the 1910s and 1920s with the losses due to World War I and the crazy years of prohibition. Do you think when everybody was in quarantine that the Oh gosh, surged? I wonder. That would be, I should have looked at that. The board was such a normal household game that in May 1920, the cover of the Saturday Evening Post had an illustration of a man and woman with a Ouija board between them. The illustrator, Norman Rockwell. Oh, shoot. I was like, that guy. (laughs) Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. I got it. So that's how nonchalant is like Monopoly. Actually, I know. So what's the problem, Mom? We should do a Ouija board. It's super common. During the Great Depression, new factories had to be opened to meet the demands for the board. Oh, jeez. For example. It's just a board. <laughs> How much work goes into that? In 1944, a single New York department store sold 50,000 of the boards in a five-month period. Like before Christmas, though? <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? That's well, still I mean, like crazy. That's still crazy, though. You're right. In 1966, Parker Brothers bought the game from the Fold Company, and a year later, during Vietnam, the Summer of Love, and race riots, the company sold two million boards. Wow. Except for a few cases of bizarre murders that I read about, supposedly Ouija board inspired, it was a popular harmless game. But people would be like, okay, for example, I think it was a woman who killed her husband and buried him in the backyard and said the Ouija board told her to do it. Or, you know, (laughs) she sounds cacao. But there were there were people who claimed these, you know, that the Ouija board told them ruining the fun for everybody. So it was a popular harmless game until 1973. The Exorcist was released in theaters. Oh. In that story, which I happen to consider one of the freakiest stories, Reagan, a 12-year-old girl, is possessed by a demon after playing with the Ouija board. All of a sudden, the Ouija board becomes something ominous and dangerous. See, it's just Hollywood. Something that, (laughs) yeah, you're right. Something that when used could open the portal to the devil. In 1991, Hasbro, who bought Parker Brothers, sold thousands of Ouija boards. I mean, Hasbro makes Mr. Potato Head. Like, come on. (laughs) But for a whole other reason than before, they now had a scare factor that people were and are into. The Ouija board is still popular, maybe because we are again in economic uncertainty, but I think it has more to do with the popularity of it in movies and on mm-hmm. TV and with having a certain mm, occult attraction. Sure. I know that you've played with a Ouija board before and yes. have felt it move. Yes. Yeah, I've I've used a Ouija board a couple times, but I'm always very smart, I guess I can say, about where I have used the Ouija board and okay. like... I close it out and I make sure no spirits like attached to me when I close it out. I've, I think I've done the Ouija board three times and two times I can't tell you if it was just my girlfriend's moving it or not. We might have been intoxicated. <laughs> but the one time yeah. where it really kind of freaked me out was in the field behind our house. 
I remember you did that. You told me about that. With my girlfriend in high school. And that I know because we were both just super into paranormal. So I know neither one of us would have ever just purposefully done it. We were we took it very seriously. (laughs) And so we did it outside because if you do it like in your house or something and that's calling spirits, if you I guess I mean. I'm sorry, but your story just basically told me that it's a toy and then <laughs> it was Hollywood marketed. turned it into some sensationalized, scary thing. That's the history of it. So really, I could do it in my house now and just make sure I close it out. Well, it depends on what you believe in. I guess. But we did it outside because I had always thought that if you do it inside and you're bringing all these spirits into your house and your house will all of a sudden be haunted. So again, we took this very seriously. And we did it outside and we had a Richard come through. I don't remember. And he said that he worked with fish, if I remember right. And I think we just got really freaked out because I think I had to have been like 16 or 17 when we did that. But it was moving and that was just so, I don't know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool when it actually moves if it's not your girlfriend moving it. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Well, you know, I'm the skeptic. <laughs> and I... So after doing the research that you did, would you be more open to doing it now? No. Oh. <laughs> I do believe that the planchet is being moved. But is it a spirit? Or could it be something called the odometer actions of the participants? Let me explain that. To mm, me... Please. <laughs> to me, a psychology major, this, is, this idea is extremely compelling. What is an ideometer action? According to the 2005 article, A Natural Explanation for Many Paranormal Experiences by John Jackson. Say that three times. John Jackson. <laughs> John Jingleheimer Schmidt. <laughs> no kidding. The source is criticalthinking.org. These actions are now. I don't want to, you know. Lose me? Because you're losing me. <laughs> <laughs> or blow your whole idea of it. But anyway. They're unconscious involuntary motor movements that are performed by a person because of prior expectations, suggestions, or preconceptions. So kind of like Swan Island, like we talked about the spirit box and how if you've done research on a location and you know that two girls had drowned there, and then you hear these voices coming over the spirit box and you automatically put drown and girls and whatever into what you're hearing through the spirit box. Is that kind of... It's sort of, but in this way, their motor, your your motor skills are doing It's just crazy how your brain works. That's just insane. Subconsciously. You don't even know that you're... Oh, that that in itself is spooky. I mean, you have no idea. And when you're sitting, it was really interesting, this article, and I'm not smart enough to really talk about it in like a scientific terms. But if you're sitting with a group of people and you all believe that this Ouija board is going to tell you something and your, you know, your fine motor skills are moving this, but subconsciously, you're going to blame that movement. I mean, you're not going to think that you're doing it. But how can, say, five people sitting around doing that all sync up and move to the letter R, I, Maybe one person is doing, maybe one person is doing it at that time. I have no idea how this works, but subconsciously it's a fine motor skill. It's just weird. Anyway, it's an idea. I'm distracted by the sticker on the back of your iPad that I got you for Christmas. Aaron, Ghost Adventures. I wanted to say that. I was like, whoa, bro. (laughs) 
The effect is very convincing. And since the person is unaware that they are causing the movements, they think that the movements are due to external forces, usually paranormal in nature. To add to this, usually when people use the Ouija board, it's with a group of people, like I said, that are looking for the same outcome. And once that idea or preconception has been planted, there's an open readiness for it to happen. There's more to this unconscious or ideomotor action, which I found extremely interesting, but I won't go into that here because, well, I don't want to be a total skeptic when it comes to the Ouija board. Deep down, I must believe in something because you don't do I it. refuse to play with one. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I believe in the unconscious movement as moving the planchet, I also believe that it could open you up to something that I have no intention with, of messing with. I did see The Exorcist when it came out. <laughs> I also read the book. <laughs> so there's that preconception that's already been planted in my brain. <laughs> A little history on the Ouija board. Wow. Now you know how it ties to Maryland. <laughs> yeah, but I also now am not anywhere near afraid of it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe that's something we do for our Patreon. I'm not doing it. Why? <laughs> I'm not going to do it. No. Why not? I'm not messing with it. All right. It. So I'll go sit outside all by myself. <laughs> yeah. And if the thing moves. <laughs> I think it says two or more people have to yeah, be playing yeah, with it. Yeah. So. That's what the board game says. <laughs> the board game. The family. Family fun. Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe. Come bring... on, kids. Let's play with the Ouija board. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That would so be me. <laughs> We're stuck in quarantine. Let's go sit on the patio. I have a new game for us to play. The Ouija board. They've sold millions. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would be curious to see if it spiked over quarantine. That'd be interesting. Hmm. I'll have to look into that and see. Hmm. Well, that was interesting, Mom. Thank you. You're welcome. I know it was a bit historical, but I wanted to get away from the ghosts and stuff for a little while. And you kind of let us forget about poor Carolyn for a little while, too. I so. did. Mm. Thanks for that. Alrighty, friends. Well, we are actually going to be taking our first week off next week. Yes, we are. Uh, Mom has another surgery. Yeah, a pretty big one, but... I have been very blessed with a great team of doctors and a fantastic plastic surgeon. Uh, you know who you are. I'll call you out, Doc. Thank you. Big shout out to you. Um, yeah, so it'll all be great. One step closer to being to finished. A full recovery from this yucky yeah. cancer stuff. Yep. Uh, but it kind of. What makes it really fun when we come back is that we'll be back on February 1st. And those that have been with us since the beginning know that that is our one year anniversary. It will be exactly. Our very first podcast launched on February 1st of the yucky year of 2020. So there's one good thing things that, that happened out. from that year. <laughs> so it'll be our one year anniversary. February 1st, we'll be back ready to go for another great year. Unfortunately, also because of the surgery, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get together to do the February listeners episode, but keep sending your stories in. That just means March's listeners episode will be a little longer. Hopefully. Yeah. Send keep those sending stories those stories. In. We've received a few, but we can always get more. And you do not want to just hear me rambling on another episode. No, we don't. <laughs> Mom hears that on a regular occurrence. <laughs> and I know my birthday was a while ago, but thank you so much, everybody, for all the happy birthday wishes. 
Mom's looking at me. Oh, yeah, the normal spiel. You can send us your stories to killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. If you guys have time, we would love, love, love for you guys to leave us a review. It's very helpful to push us up in the ranks. It just really means a lot. We really appreciate you taking the extra time. If you want to hear more of us. (laughs) More Beth. (laughs) Oh, boy. Just can't get enough of me. (laughs) You can join our Patreon. (laughs) We are at www.patreon.com backslash killer hangover podcast. And the link is in the description of this episode. Right. And for those of you who aren't patrons, you missed the bloopers yes you missed the bloopers and the way i posted the bloopers three different times but (laughs) she blooped on all of all of them yeah 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 but to all you patrons thank you very much definitely you can follow us on our social media on facebook and instagram and you can also follow us on our website there is a little thing at the bottom where you can follow us so you get updates whenever we post about episodes if you don't have a facebook or instagram and you still want to see photos that's on our website and that is www.killerhangover.wordpress.com all right mom this was another good one it was cheers mama cheers love you kid